Professor Potter, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is a great series you have. Uh, why don't we start with your background? Where did you start off, the, you know, the arc of your career so far, and uh, what you're doing now? Sure. Um, I'm an associate professor of politics at the University of Virginia. I've been here about seven years, and my research is mainly on the executive branch and the bureaucracy. So um, it's uh, not an obvious career path to be someone who spends their life studying the bureaucracy. So I can say how that non-obvious career choice came about. Um, and I tell students this a lot when I'm teaching that um, it, it, you can follow a circuitous career path and still end up with a job you love. Um, after I graduated from college, I worked in DC as first a junior lobbyist and then as a paralegal. And I was thinking about, do I wanna enter politics or um, go to law school? And I decided neither of those was the path I was interested in. So I uh, got a master's in public policy and wanted to work in po public policy and thinking about detailed policies and how those work. I got a job at the Office of Management and Budget after grad school, and I worked as a regulatory desk officer in the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. And in that job, I learned so much about how regulations are made in the US, which is not something I had any background in. And so I became fascinated and um, decided I was going to move to Germany and work on regulatory reform in Germany. So I did that for a year, lived in Berlin. And then I decided that I wanted to do research on this. So I went and got a PhD in political science and public policy at the University of Michigan. And um, from there, I came to UVA um, where I work now and um, keep studying the bureaucracy and rulemaking and regulation and how that works in the US. So it looks like the, the overarching theme uh, of your work is really this kind of bureaucracy concept or rulemaking concept. Can you talk, broadly speaking, what is your interest uh, as it relates to these, these kind of broad questions? Sure. Well, the reason I find the bureaucracy so interesting is that today in 2021, the bureaucracy is making really important policy choices that affect all of our lives. So they um, regulate how, how clean the air we breathe is, um, what drugs we can take, um, where, where they're sold, um, how they're sold. They decide who and is and who is not disabled and how our retirement funds are managed. So that's like everything we do is affected by bureaucracy, but we don't have a good perception and understanding of how that works. Like that's not what we're taught in high school. Uh, we're taught about Congress and Congress making laws. Um, and that's the right way to make policy. That's sort of the normative takeaway we have. And so I wanna think about how these unelected people are making these policy choices um, and, and what that means for all of us and what kinds of choices and how does politics, the fact that we do have a separation of power system and there's oversight from all of these bodies over the bureaucracy, how does that affect um, what bureaucrats do? Um, how does oversight work in practice? How does oversight change what agencies do? Um, and how does this exchange, which is really dynamic between agencies and Congress and agencies and the judiciary and agencies and the president, change the outcomes that we actually observe coming of policies coming out of um, the bureaucracy. So one thing that sort of unifies all of this is sort of um, our deep interest in procedure, which is really something that's very important to bureaucracies is like 
uh, and that goes all the way back to Max Weber in the 1880s writing about the importance of procedure to having a professionalized bureaucracy. So I mean, it's interesting when you, you spent some time in Germany, I'm curious how that influenced any of your thinking related to the US or those regulatory side? Did it have any impact or did it not? I mean, they're, they're famous for rulemaking. So I'm curious or, or process, if you will. Yeah. So maybe you could uh, share if anything you learned from your German experience. So um, the regulatory reform process in Europe is so different, right? Because you have the EU um, sort of giving these countries guidelines about what they have a, a, regulation, a regulatory initiative called better regulation. That kind of comes down from top and it's really hard to fit into the to individual countries' systems. Um, so, so that was really interesting to think about this multi-level governance that really matters a lot in Europe and does here too if we think about states, but not at the federal level. We don't have that same super body. Um, and so, so it was really interesting to see that interplay um, and on how that country was trying to reform its system. Um, it's a slow process there, just like it is here. So there's a lot of lessons about commonalities, about um, how procedure looks in Germany is in a lot of ways really similar. Of course, they have a parliamentary system. So um, like it, it's, it's different uh, on that grounds. Um, but um, and, and as you point out, there's a word in German, Ordnung, which means like order and attention to order, which is a uh, very different attitude towards the state and regulation than we have in the US. So I think all of these things are really interesting dynamic features, but in sort of the, the US is its own unicorn. And so um, uh, I came back and I really wanted to study that unicorn, but I think there are some similarities. Well, let's go into the, you know, some of the details, you know, and maybe we can start with this first, this notion of oversight, since we're talking mainly about Congress, we want to talk about Congress as it relates to the executive. And if all these rules are happening in the executive, the, you know, the first question and one that we've addressed with previous, you know, uh, previous guests on the program has been really the, the concept of oversight. Um, so from your perspective, now I know there's different ways to view oversight and if you could just walk us through a little bit, you know, how do you view oversight, Congress's oversight of the executive, and uh, what areas, you know, in particular are you focused on? Yeah, so I think when people hear oversight, they think hearings or investigations, and that absolutely is oversight, and it's really important oversight, because oversight of the executive branch is so important, right? This is what the Constitution set out, that we have separated powers checking each other, and so we need um, Congress to do that. Um, and one way it does it is these really visible ways, like having hearings, ha uh, conducting investigations. Those matter so much, but they're only one way um, that oversight is conducted. So kind of spooling us back to 19, the 1970s, there was a big debate among political scientists whether there was enough oversight because people thought there weren't enough hearings. Um, and then someone pointed out, rightfully, right, that that's not the only thing that Congress is doing, it's also passing laws and those laws tell agencies what to do in the executive branch. And so can we look at those laws and think about how those might be their own form of oversight? And so what really emerges from this is the idea of ex post oversight, which is really after the fact. So after an agency messes something up, you can have a hearing and say, oh, you had a VA scandal on, on wait times. That was a problem, let's fix that. Right. Or there wasn't an investigation into this problem at the Department of Education. 
So that's called ex post after the fact. But what we're, we discovered in the 70s and 80s was like, there's also this form of oversight called ex ante before the fact. And we might think about the distinction as, has the agency implementing something or is it making policy choices down the line? And we wanna make sure that they make the right policy choices. Um, and so what we mean by this is if we look at what agencies do, like in the rulemaking process that I study, there's a lot of procedures that Congress in particular has set up and told agencies, you have to pay attention to the following five things every time you write a rule. And by making them follow a procedure and pay attention to those things, Congress ensures that those things are not forgotten, that they are in every single rule, an agency has to say what the paperwork implications are of every single rule they write. Um, and so this before the fact, ex ante oversight is a huge way that Congress kind of steers the agent agencies in the executive branch in particular directions that it cares about. So this is a procedural oversight. Uh, and so this is really focused on like when agencies are making policy choices, let's set up a process in advance that stacks the deck in favor of things that we care about or groups that we care about that we want the agency to continually pay attention to. So, so I think that's a distinction that gets lost and it's hard to observe this kind of oversight that I'm talking about. The before the fact oversight, because you have to go in and dig and read the laws. Whereas you can go and count hearings and you can count investigations and you can say those are declining over time or whatever your metric is. Um, it's a lot harder to say what's happening with procedure over time. So it's interesting, you know, when I think about oversight, uh, I think of it more as a board of directors who is supposed to be watching over the the actions of the management team, getting data, you know, tracking, you know, usage of a product, et cetera. You know, I, I have a more business view of what oversight is. And then, but it, obviously I've learned, you know, through talking to a number of different scholars and, you know, operators within Congress that oversight is typically thought of more as, as you mentioned, which is, you know, investigations. Um, and you're bringing up another concept here, which is really the way Congress has instituted a process as being almost a self-regulating process that the executive has to go through. Now, and this is very interesting. I mean, basically, they're creating a, a set of rules to develop rules, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I guess one of my questions along these lines are, and, and this comes to some of my questions for later as well, though, is are these standardized you know is did someone come up with here are the five steps that are that are important for any rulemaking for any executive agency and everyone refers to this best practice or is it every rulemaking agency has its own ad hoc kind of structure to it uh and you know can you walk us through like how is that done and is it is it wildly different from agency to agency or is it the same for everyone Okay, so my answer, answer here is that it's both, which is maybe a frustrating answer. So back in 1946, Congress passed a law called the Administrative Procedure Act. And it told, that is like the backbone of the, the administrative state. Like that law is so important, the APA. And it told agencies, when you wanna do things like rulemaking, here are the basic steps. And if you go look at that law, it was nine pages when it was passed. So it's not like really in depth, but again, today in 2021, we're, we call it the backbone, right? Um, and what it did is it said, there's some basic steps. If you're going to make a regulation and you're a, a federal agency, 
that regulation at the end of the process is the same, it's binding law. So it's the same legal weight as if Congress had passed that law. So that's a big responsibility for unelected people to do, right? And so what the APA says is you have to issue a proposal, you have to solicit public comment, um, and then you have to issue a final rule that says what you did in response to these comments, like if you changed anything or and why, and then you have to uh, allow for a waiting period before the, the rule takes effect. So these are sort of basic procedural steps that were set up in the APA. That applies to everybody. Um, and there's there's exceptions to the APA in, in special cases, but generally the law is pretty broad. Um, from there, that was 1946. Congress has passed lots of laws replying to agencies since then. And individual agencies have had procedural uh, layers put over the top of that. Um, some of them are not agency specific. Like I mentioned, paperwork is one thing that Congress was at some point in uh, 1980, one was thinking agencies are making people do too much paperwork. So it passed a law called the Paperwork Reduction Act. And every time you write a regulation, you have to reference what the Paperwork Reduction Act implications are. So that applies to everyone too. But then agencies like the Food and Drug Administration has special um, requirements when it writes rules, as does the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So and those have come in individual statutes. So there are specific agency specific requirements, but there's also a broad process that applies across the federal government. And so what about the concept of sunsets? You know, I've always been amazed that Congress doesn't bake in automatic sunsets to every bill. I guess they assume that every bill they pass is good for eternity. Uh, and it looks like they've made the same assumption for the, the regulatory agencies. Uh, so is that something that has ever been providing any guidance to the agencies or are, they, are all of their rules immortal? <laughs> so um, rules are not immortal, um, right? We know that from the Trump administration where Trump made an active endeavor to undo, to, to deregulate, um, which is its own process um, to take rules off the books. So it's not like a rule can never be taken off once it's made, but it does have to be undone. Um, but uh, there have been conversations at various points about regulatory sunsets. Um, the thing about regulatory sunsets is that they create a lot of work for agencies. And I, I just want to point this out because I, what I just mentioned was all these procedural steps that agencies have to, to, um, to take in rulemaking. They have to do so many, so many boxes to check. What are the implications for Native American tribes for this rule? Things like that. And so um, if you, so agencies have a huge backlog. Writing a rule takes several years typically. Agencies have a huge backlog of things that Congress already told them to do, like write a new rule on this subject and they haven't gotten it to it yet. Um, and on top of that, if we had sunsets, um, we would need a much bigger bureaucracy to do all of this work. So it's not necessarily that it, it is a terrible idea, but do we have the capacity to do that now in 2021 if all rules sunset at, it at five years now? Um, it would be, I think, an unmitigated disaster to say that there was this deadline because I don't know how agencies, some of these regulations are critical to our health and, and safety. And so I would hate to say that because we thought you know, there was a time limit was a good idea, suddenly they get erased, right? Because we would need to be able to put them back quickly. And that would create, if we didn't, it would create a lot of uncertainty for the firms 
that comply with all these regulations? Like, is this thing going to persist in five years? Oh, I don't know. How should I do long-term planning? So if we step back to the, the fundamental idea of oversight again for a minute, um, you know, in my view, there's this concept of Congress passes a law. One question is, is that law being executed, mm -hmm. right, faithfully? Yeah. Uh, and I guess that's the first, you know, notion I have. How, do, how does Congress know if all these agencies are actually doing the things Congress told it to do? Is there some mechanism or the, is that part of the job of the, of, you know, of a particular group of people to watch that? Or is that something that's taken on faith unless there's some kind of a, an emergency or a whistleblower? Um, I think we have a lot of different ways. One, we have the media, right? Um, so that it's reporting on VA wait time scandals or anything an agency is doing that is really problematic for the public. Um, but generally, part of this system of procedurals, uh, ex ante oversight that I talked about, um, involves giving interest groups the right to complain or to sue an agency, right? So interest groups, we have thousands and thousands of them in DC, and they are able, um, in a lot of cases, to point out potential problems before they emerge, so we don't have to have this disaster happen, we can have somebody say, hey, this is looking pretty bad. Um, or, you know, after the fact, when it does happen, there is a voice to that constituency to say this really is not what Congress intended with this law. So we have sort of diffuse. So in this sense, like uh, this is, again, coming back to the 1980s and thinking about what does actually oversight look like? It's not necessarily just Congress who's going out and detecting the problems. It's also interest groups who are have a stake in these policies. But it sounds to me like the way you just described it is that Congress is actually outsourced a lot of this oversight work to the to the private sector uh, and tried to make it self-regulating rather than having a series of watchdogs that are just making sure that the law is implemented as it was intended. Is that right? So you could you when you say it that way, it sort of has a negative valence. Um, I think you can think about it as outsourcing. Um, one of the terms that's used in the literature is that this is an, a more efficient way of monitoring agencies because we have 330 million people in this country and um, bureaucratic agencies are doing all these things I already mentioned for each of these people, right? Clean water, clean air, um, safe pharmaceutical drugs, all that stuff. Um, and so how do we know about all of these problems when they're so diffuse in society and so complex, right? These things the bureaucracies do um, if you go and read a regulation in the Federal Register, they are not casual, you know, Sunday afternoon reading. These are detailed, thoughtful, complex policies. So it, it's hard for um, Congress, who's like this body of generalists, to really have this sustained in-depth knowledge to make the policy, the broad policy guidelines, and also to make sure that they're always being faithfully followed. So this is, a, I would describe it as a more efficient way to oversee sort of problems, executive branch and society writ large, um, is to allow the people that are uh, negatively affected by them to say, hey, I'm negatively affected by them. So what about the, the costs of regulation? So I, I had a discussion with um, Congressional Budget Office, um, where we were talking about, you know, the, their job is to figure out what the consequences of any law to the US budget, right? 
Um, but meanwhile, that calculation of scoring bills doesn't include the costs to private businesses, right? It's really just a, the impact of the U.S. government rather than the impact of society, the societal cost. Uh, and so you, you're missing that for bills. Um, but it seems like for regulations, you do get some of that through the public feedback. Um, is that something that you think is sufficient, you know, when the when the regulators, do you think that process captures that kind of external cost when they're doing the, when they're doing their review of what what the regulation should be? So that's one way that they get feedback on costs in society. But I would say the more active way that they're uh, calculating the cost is through cost benefit analysis. So, um, starting with President Reagan, um, agency uh, rules that are. Um, have policy consequences require a cost benefit analysis and this varying quality I should say across the executive branch, but a lot of them are very sophisticated thinking about what are the costs and when agencies do a cost benefit analysis, they are taking a societal perspective they're not taking the agency's perspective or Congress's or they're taking societal benefit uh, perspective, which has its own uh, problems too. I wouldn't say that's like a perfect solution. But they are costing out over you know time what is the consequence of me adopting this policy um, versus a they're supposed to consider a policy alternative so versus another way we could accomplish this goal is this uh, and and regulations are only supposed to be adopted in in theory if they offer net benefits um, to society so we are explicitly thinking about this this is not something that's casual their executive branch has set up a process by which every regulation takes into account the, the cost imposed to society. So one thing I'm, I'm curious about, that it's not directly a regulatory agency problem, it's more about the instructions they're given from Congress, right? Because a lot of the, um, like if we take two agencies I'm a little bit more familiar with, say the FAA or the, or the FDA, um, in the case of both of these agencies, you know, they both make a lot of rules and um, those rules have tremendous cost to the, uh, to the manufacturers. Um, but the cost in my mind, the biggest cost is in innovation because typically the, the, the you know, the, the, the net effect of a lot of these regulations is that it's more costly to bring something new to market, whether it's a new airplane or whether it's a new drug. Mm -hmm. The costs go up, you know, in, in drugs, it's famous to be a billion dollars uh, in airplanes, you know, it, it's mainly you can see the result through the lack of innovative new airplanes that come on the market, primarily driven by regulation. And that's probably because Congress has given it a job to be focused on safety, not focused on innovation. Uh, so the rules on the one side can be very effective. They have been effective um, at creating a more safe environment. On the other hand, they've retarded the long-term innovation of the industry. So when they go through that rulemaking process, how much does something like innovation come in or is it totally ad hoc again to the agency? And that's one of those extra rules that they would put on top. So a couple of things um, here. One is like when an agency does a cost benefit analysis, it's taking the status quo at this moment and thinking about given where we are now, what is the additional cost or benefit of this policy proposal. So that's a little different than what you're you're talking about, which is like the net overall regulatory burden suppresses innovation. So 
Um, so our cost benefit analysis has some ways that you could like cost in like the, the loss and in innovation, like economists have thought about things like that. But I think your broader point is like, well, on net, this regulatory scheme we've established on the whole, not this particular new regulation, is it costing society something? And so that's where things like we have uh, each president for the last, you know, 20 years, 30 years has done some sort of uh, regulatory look back where they say, well, can we go in and think about how to streamline our regulations? Now, I would say this process is not as um, institutionalized or systematic as I would hope it would be. Um, as a scholar of institutions, you want to institutionalize stuff, but agencies do think about this. And, you know, we had broad scale like airline deregulation um, in the 70s and things like that. So there have been moments where we've kind of realized that the broader approach we're taking to a particular industry is not working. Um, but um, our process is maybe not designed to sort of reevaluate the whole um, wheel at any particular moment. I would say that's not really an agency's role to sort of say, be, we're doing the whole airline industry wrong. That's Congress's role, right? Because um, agencies in theory are told to go regulate the airlines and they have some discretion within that, but the broad policy calls about the way it should be structured are intended um, in our system to be taken up by Congress. Yeah, like you said, it's incremental and, uh, and maybe their job is to be incremental. Um, and it just seems to me that most of the incremental work of the agencies I'm familiar with is typically more safety oriented than it is um, with an ultimate aim of increasing innovation in an industry, right? Or maintaining that innovation. Uh, and so typically the regulations wind up um, benefiting safety to a great extent, but on the other side, there's a, there's a cost of long-term innovation. So there's long-term potential decrease in utility. Um, but when it comes to regulations, you know, obviously even incrementally, some of them can have a huge impact, right? Whether it's in the banking industry or any other industry. So even those incremental rule changes that the regulators are making or can have a huge consequence, as you mentioned in the beginning. So what do you think Congress's role is as it relates to those regulations? Should they have a should should Congress have a mechanism to say, look, we don't like that regulation, don't do it? Uh, you know, should regulations above a certain cost have to go through Congress? And what's your thought on the the balance between the existing situation with the regulators and the in Congress? So um, so generally at any point in time, Congress could always pass a law that overwrote any agency regulation. Like that would just supersede the agency's regulation. So this is always within Congress's wheelhouse. So they always have that, that capability as a baseline. From there, Congress actually does um, have a review power um, called the Congressional Review Act. So the Congressional Review Act was passed in 1996. Um, and basically what it does is replace an earlier way that Congress oversaw um, rules. So before 1996, before 1993, 1983, I should say, Congress had the ability to do a legislative veto. So an agency would write a rule and Congress would say, nah, we don't like that. In 1983, the court struck that down in a case called INS, INS versus Chadha and said that Congress can't unilaterally strike agency regulations because they have to send that to the president for the presentment, right? That's what the Constitution says. So 
So that got overthrown. In 1996, Congress tried to reassert this with the Congressional Review Act. And that law works like this. An agency writes a, a big rule, like the kind you're talking about, that's um, important and has big economic consequences. And it has to send it to Congress. Um, and then Congress has 60 legislative days um, to review that rule. Um, and there's not really a systematic review that's happening in Congress when I say that to review it for any member to raise an objection and introduce a resolution. So if a resolution against a particular rule that was submitted to the GAO under the Congressional Review Act was passed in the House and the Senate and then signed by the president, then that rule would be overturned. Um, but the incentive structure under the Congressional Review Act is, is a little weird. Um, because it requires the president to overturn his own, uh, ex the executive branch's rule. So this is really only used in certain ways. So there's not a systematic um, or certain points in time because, right, presidents don't often want to overturn the executive branch because why would they do that? Um, and so there's not really a systematic sort of deep think, I would describe it, review of agency regulations in Congress. It's much more ad hoc when a rule gets a lot of attention and then they know that a member knows it's under CRA review in Congress and they might um, initiate it, but there's not like a, in the executive branch, we have systematic review of agency regulations through the White House, but we don't have a parallel function in Congress. Can you talk through what that systematic review is on the executive side, since you were, uniquely positioned to answer that question since you were involved in it? Yeah, so um, what so this uh, process uh, works through an office uh, in the Office of Management and Budget, which is part of the Executive Office of the President. So the office is called the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, or OIRA. And I, I worked there after I got my master's degree for two years. Um, and, and the work is really at the desk officer. And so how it works is um, starting with President Reagan, um, they didn't have this power before. Agencies used to write regulations and then just publish them. And then the president would be like, what? Um, and so um, starting with Reagan, this office was uh, given the power to review agency regulations. And so agencies draft a proposal and they send it over to OIRA and OIRA reviews it. They don't do the cost benefit analysis or do the writing, but the people in OIRA are making sure that there is good policy there, that the cost benefit analysis is up to standards that we think the executive branch should hold to, and that it, it coordinates um, with the president's agenda, right? Because this is presidential review over the executive branch. Um, and so OIRA reviews um, these agency regulations if it okays them, then they're published in the Federal Register, and that's like the first time the public really knows what the, the um, agency is thinking about that particular policy, like what are they actually going to do with airplanes or whatever the issue is. And then um, it happens again at the uh, final rule stage. So there's two stages, the proposed rule and the final rule, and OIRA gets to review uh, regulations from the executive branch at each of those stages. Great. So let's talk about then the detail of what happens in between OIRA's first view and its second view. Uh, so it's published in draft form, and then there's comments. Can you walk us through how that works? And how inclusive is the process really? And who really holds the power in that process? Yes. Okay. So um, there's a public comment period. Anybody can log on to the federalregister.gov or regulations.gov, these two websites, um, and regulations.gov 
you can submit a comment. Almost no one does. And I don't, I say that glibly, but I mean, what I mean is like, this is a pretty rare event that a member of the public would take it upon themselves to comment on the FAA's new standards for how long runways should be. Like these are specific technical policies by and large. And so it's hard for the average Joe to understand and have the time to comment on this. So most of the comments that come in from the public tend to be sort of a, a value comment. I value clean air. I value flights arriving on time. Um, and so the, but the, at that point, the agency's already made the, a proposal. So like those comments are less helpful in terms of values and deliberating, okay, well, how long should the runway be? Or um, how clean should the air be? Um, how many particulates per million? Um, so most of the comments that come in that are sort of technically savvy and useful from like a technical standpoint from the agency come from interest groups like businesses or nonprofits like um, at the EPA we think about industry submits a lot of comments as does groups like the Sierra Club. And so agencies are taking these comments and they're they're reading them and sometimes you know with the FCC's net neutrality rule that agency got 22 million comments now that's a an extreme outlier, but agencies are having to read all of these and deliberate, should we do what the people are asking us to do? Um, there, most of the research suggests that there is a bias towards business-oriented comment, comments submitted by business. And the re reason for this is those tend to be more sophisticated comments. So if a big firm might have a lawyer on staff whose job it is to read the Federal Register and write comments on behalf of that firm. Um, and they might submit research studies um, and really have firm ideas of, about why one particular matter standard is better or than another. And so, so there's, um, there's a difference in the type and quality of comments received, but and then we see that kind of playing out and sort of when we see agencies being more responsive, who are they more responsive to? most of the research suggests they're more responsive to these more sophisticated comments. So it's opened up people, you know, or businesses throw their comments in there. And then there's some kind of deliberation inside the, uh, the rule makers, the bureaucracy. How does that work? Are they around a table? Is there a, is there a committee of people with equal power and a vote on each comment? You know, what what exactly happens in there? Yeah, so when agencies write rules, they typically write them at sort of like the lowest common unit, which is called the program office, um, right? The people who are actually specialists and whatever that thing is. Um, and then they have to work within the broader, you know, department or organization they work within. So it'll be a team of people who are generally um, specialists in that area, um, maybe a lawyer. Uh, and they're not always, they can't read 22 million comments, right? Um, so there's like tools that agencies use like AI, like plagiarism detection to make sure if somebody's submitting a huge chunk of identical comments that the agency doesn't have to like pour through them. Um, and, and they're having, they're deliberating over the things people are raising as issues. Um, and the, the sort of- I'm Sorry, standard, and when you say they're deliberating, who's they? these program office people eventually when a policy and, and what they're doing is they're writing in the preamble to the final rule a response uh, a lot of people weighed in on provision 10 um but we don't think we can change it for the following reasons um they're not this is not a deliberate the the 
the pool of comments is not representative of the larger public and the agency's task is not to deliberate and weigh sort of where the balance of comments is it's to take those points and reason them out and decide if those people have made good enough suggestions that should make it into the final rule and so they have to explain in the final rule why they didn't or did or didn't do things um so the the process is a, a an agency process like I, I mean a career bureaucrat process by, by and large but before it's going to end up in the federal register it's going to go through a political process where political appointees at that agency are going to review it and so is omb who has a, sort of the president's ear so there is it's not like it goes completely outside of any political oversight um but it does happen the sort of discussions are happening generally at, at a pretty um deep area in the agency so down low there's some there's some decision making happening but then eventually it gets signed off by the secretary uh, of oh, someone at omb yeah. and who, then OMB, yeah. who was going to interpret its you know impact to the president one way or another yes uh, so, but but John, but but the key here is that it's an expert-driven decision-making process, um, and that the comments that are coming in are suggestions that they may or may not follow. But they, but also importantly, they have to respond to those comments with mm -hmm. a rationale. Yes. Got it. Um, and so, this kind of discussion that's going on is there structure to it? Uh, or could there be better structure to it? So, for instance, you mentioned a couple of examples, um, parts per million or whatever, in 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 uh, the Clean Air Act, for instance, or you know some uh, some regulation that comes out from the EPA. You know, some decisions are going to be just like in Congress; they're going to be numerical decisions, and some decisions are going to be kind of a, you know a written word; they're binary. You know, the sentence exists or it doesn't. You know, but on the other hand, there's the number, which can be infinitely variable. Do they structure the conversation in any way to facilitate, you know, kind of efficiency in reviewing it? You know, like, hey, give me your numbers. And then they look at the numbers and the ranges independent of the words. And then they have a different process around words and regulations. Um, so I think I've interviewed a lot of agency people about how this works. And I think it really varies at different agencies. Um, most of the time, what agencies are doing is trying to sort of group things together to say, okay, a bunch of people were worried about like that one provision and a bunch of people were worried about this other thing. So they're really trying to group things by what they came into the rule. I don't think you can necessarily divorce like um, arguments about like uh, this, a standard and, and not all rules have that by the way, you know, so that, so some rules don't have thresholds or like a, a quantitative empirical point. Um, but so they're it's hard to divorce even if they do that from the broader argument that the commenter is making why should it be that level and not this level is it, it's it's again it's not a temperature taking exercise it's a deliberative exercise in the sense of gathering feedback on what you've proposed already and so when you think about this rulemaking process and the way you've kind of looked at different agencies you know are there are there best practices or there worst practices? You know, is some area doing it really great, and you think that's the way everyone should do it? Uh, are they missing a major step? You know, what's kind of your conclusion about the, the whole status of this process? Is it good? Is it bad? Where can it be improved? 
Where has it failed? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of agencies are doing really great. Um, and I say that because uh, I think sometimes we think about bureaucracy and unelected nature of this. And these people are actually descriptively much more representative of the broader population um, than members of Congress are, right? So we, we have descriptive representation. Those people look a lot like us. They tend not to be, in the press, sometimes we hear about bureaucrats that are zealots or real ideologues, but that's actually when we try to estimate ideology of bureaucrats, not where most people are. Most people are more moderate than members of Congress are. Um, and so I think these are interesting points to think about um, in terms of like, yes, there's deliberation happening and yes, it's by and large happening behind closed doors. And so, um, but that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? That we, 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 have people who are experts in the field. When I think about where agencies could improve, I think a lot of agencies have excellent cost-benefit analysis, and a lot of agencies have less than excellent cost-benefit analysis and could really stand to improve. Um, and so that's one area I, I often think about. Like, if we're going to do cost-benefit analysis, and we have this as a big part of our regulatory system, we should be doing it well. Um, and we're not always doing it well. So it sounds to me like you think that the, the current state where the executive branch is doing most of the regulating, and in my mind, it seems like they're writing most of the law, uh, is an okay state of affairs. Whereas when the, when the, you know, obviously when the country started, all the legislation was in the legislative branch, and they've sort of outsourced that to the executive um, and I know that that's been held up in court, you know, 100 plus years ago. Um, but if you could go back, you know, would you, do you think this is the right way? Do you think Congress in theory should have kept that whole regulatory apparatus and expanded its own capabilities? Or do you think it's fine to put it in the executive branch? Um, you know, I don't know if it's helpful to compare us to the founding, um, right? We are a country of 330 million people today. That is very different from the country we started as. And just so when we think of just the number of people we're serving and the number of policies we have. We didn't have Medicare at the founding, but we have it now and it's not going anywhere. Um, and, and, you know, so like, what do you do given the status quo we find ourselves with? So I think there's a lot of question about like, today, right? Are, is the bureaucracy doing too much? Um, should Congress be taking on more of this load? And I think, yes, Congress should be taking on more of this load. The EPA has had been forced into this situation, largely by the courts, um, but by a number of other political factors, where they are forced to have to do a lot of climate change regulation, right? Climate change is one of the most pressing challenges facing our country today, in my opinion. And, um, Congress is not making, we have no federal climate change policy right now. Congress has abdicated this authority um, and it could take it back tomorrow. There's no like reason for this, except that it's really hard to make climate change policy, but somebody's got to do it. So now the EPA is doing it. And I think that causes a lot of consternation on the left and on the right um, of just concern that is this the right way to be doing this? Um, so probably the answer is Congress should take some of that authority back, but it's not able to for some reasons, but also like in, empowered to in other ways. Um, so yes, the sort of balance is shifted. Um, but in terms of like, if we have a broad climate change policy, and we need to set the thresholds for what particulate matters are should be and what research we need to support 
kind of the understanding of where climate policy should go. We need people that are going to spend their careers studying that. And that's what the executive branch is really good at, to have people for a career that will kind of invest in one particular niche, which Congress is, you know, a 535 generalist. They don't have a career to invest in clean air policy or whatever the policy matter is. So I think there's a real argument to having some of this function in the executive in the executive branch um, and a real case at the same time that probably sort of the pendulum has swung too much in sort of the, the president's favor over time. I mean, you could imagine, and this kind of comes to my, my last major question around this capacity concept, right? And, you know, the clearly, currently the executive branch has a much better capacity to do this kind of work. They have the experts, they have the, the people, they've got um, the, the full apparatus. And of course, Congress has given it to them, but they have that. Uh, in theory, Congress could create the same apparatus for itself, right? It could, every committee could have its own regulatory agency underneath it uh, that was doing all this work. And you just have a, a few members who are sitting on a kind of a, a, um, you know, a board on top of that group and, and signing off just in the same way that OMB is signing off. Um, you know, would you think that that, does that have some inherent problems to it that, 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 are, that would make it unviable? So I'd, I'd want to know a lot more about this alternate scenario, right? Like, are these people there for a career? Like, these policies, like, they're really in-depth, they're technical, um, and they take study and knowledge over a career. So I want people that are investing long-term in these things. Um, um, and, and, I, and I want to know what the oversight in Congress looks like. Are these 535 members who are doing all these other things able to oversee their own staffs better than they're able to oversee the executive branch? Um, what does it look like when we have a Democratic sweep and then a Republican sweep of the Congress? What does it do to this body? Like, I, I don't think there's fundamentally a deep-seated problem with that. Um, I think the executive branch generally is sort of structured in a way that it's able to sort of long-term maintain this kind of capacity in a way that, that I think is accepted by the public as relatively neutral. And I'd worry um, that if we're at housed in Congress where we have sort of like extreme partisanship writ large in this chamber, um, that what would happen to this group? Would it, would it be a worse outcome? And I don't know, but I think um, these are the kinds of questions we'd want to think about. And so let's talk about those experts just a little bit more. Uh, can you describe, I guess, and these are the key people that are really reviewing line by line the regulation, right? And they're writing it, and then they're responding to those comments. Who are they? Can you talk a little bit more about them since they seem so critical? And, you know, are they career people in the executive branch? Are they just experts that are using being used on contract? You know, how does that work? Yeah, so... Um, they're well to make a regulation you technically under by law have to be um, a, a career civil servant. Um, so the people who are making the policy choices like um, you know, are we going to do runways first or this other FAA rule? Like, what's the order? Those are career civil servants. So, um, and describing them, you know, I, I already described them a little to say like they're not generally in a broad sense ideologues they're more descriptively representation representative on the demographic sense but um 
On an individual level, like we have, you know, if you go and look at the occupation codes for the executive branch, they are, there's every occupation, there's veterinarians that work for the federal government, there's zoologists, there's uh, morticians, like there's literally every function in society replicated in some way in the executive branch. Most of the people that would work on rules are going to be subject matter experts. So SMEs is the term, right? They're people who know a lot about whatever that area is. And so their backgrounds are generally whatever, if they're agricultural or um, environmental or health related, they have these sort of degrees generally um, that accord with the field. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah. And so in the, to your other question, there are contractors working in this space um we don't have a, a a really good sense of like who they are and what they're doing and i think um that's one area i think that research should go i'm actively um hoping to explore that further in my own work great well uh i think with that maybe we'll move on to more of the general questions i ask each of our guests if you're ready to move on to the next round sure yeah all right so these obviously don't relate specifically to regulation um you know, the, the first one here is, you know, what do you think congressional representation should mean? Okay. Um, I think there's a lot of ways scholars have thought about representation. I think an important one, as I've already mentioned with the bureaucracy, is descriptive representation. So we know that members of Congress are wealthier, older, whiter, and more male than the rest of the population. So, and we also at the same time know that there are benefits, both substantive and symbolic, of having a descriptively representative elected body. So I would say that's one sort of thing when I think of what should representation look like. Well, I think we should have, we should strive to have a sort of more representative body of legislators. On the other hand, the sort of classic debate is whether we should have a trustee versus a delegate model. Um, I, I, I think uh, I'm really comfortable with the idea of a trustee, again, given that this person conditional on having a smart person with uh, and, and lots of different expert types of expertise represented in the chamber. Um, and the reason I'm comfortable with that is because when I think about constituents out there in the public, um, they have jobs and lives and kids and grandmothers to take care of and all the sort of everyday concerns of living. And they don't really have a good perspective on the trade-offs for this bill or that bill. And like, should the legislator vote for how should they vote across these two bills? Um, and that's what I think we're asking members to do is to make those tough calls. And so I'm okay with, you know, choosing someone who's using their own judgment on how to make that call. So you, uh, sounds like that's consistent with your, your confidence in the experts in the, uh, in the executive branch making decisions. Um, what about in terms of the, um, you know, it sounds like you're implying that a representative represents everyone in their district, not just their primary voters or their, or their, uh, or who elected them, but everyone in the district. Is that right? I mean, in theory, that's what we'd want from our members, right? Um, is to to think about all the people, not even the ones that voted for them, the ones that voted for the other person in the, in the campaign. Um, so I think that's a, a reasonable thing to hope for, but it's maybe not what we achieve in practice since we know that you know wealthier people have their voices amplified in the process and all, all of the things about American politics that we know. And how about uh, the future? You know, there's, there's the notion of the current constituents who are alive today 
right? Then there are the kids who are alive but not yet voting, and then there's future generations of the district uh, or state. You know, what's the does the current rep uh, represent those future generations or just the ones who are alive today? I mean, I think they have to put a discounted weight on the future generations. So we want, we care about climate change, right? But climate change is a problem that's much, much worse as we go down the garden path. And so I, I want a legislator who's thinking about that future um, for all of us and our great grandchildren, um, but also realizing that me today have to, you know, get my benefit check on time. Um, so like kind of maybe a discounted weight to the future. Got it. So the current people are slightly more represented than the future yes. generation. Yeah. <laughs> Great. All right, we'll move on to the next one, which is uh, how would your ideal Congress allocate its time? And by, by that, I mean in DC versus at home district, you know, doing legislation versus oversight. Uh, how much time should they be spending trying to get money? You know, this kind of thing. Yeah, there was some reporting a few years back that the newly elected members of Congress are supposed to spend 30 hours making phone calls um, uh, to raise money. And when I hear things like that, that is like the ultimate in uh, wasting a limited member of uh, limited time of a member of Congress. So I'd like to see a lot less time spent campaigning and raising money. Um, the other task you you mentioned, lawmaking, oversight, and constituency caseworkers, so important and so i think lawmaking sometimes is the one that gets like pushed out the most um uh, and it's the most critical to us right we want congress to make these big policy calls about sort of what we're going to do with infrastructure what we're going to do with climate change or what we're going to do you know with covid um and so we need congress to spend a lot of time doing that and i think as a result of that if i had a way sort of time in, in DC versus time in the district, I'd say a lot more time in DC. Um, because, uh, uh, you know, partially we have uh, a lot of technology. You and I are connecting on Zoom today. We're not in the same place. And members of Congress can use leverage technology to reach some constituents, maybe not all. And they also, it's quicker to travel. So, you know, like than it used to be. So they can, hopefully gain some efficiencies there and spend more time doing the thing we're asking them to do. Right. Well, the next question is, uh, how should debate, deliberation, or dialogue occur or be structured in Congress? Yeah, I mean, when I think about this, I, I think the right location for this is in, in the committees, right? We set up committees ostensibly to be the people who are focusing on defense policy or homeland security policy. So they should get together and talk about those things. And, and um, there's different ways they can do that, right? They can do that behind closed doors or they can do it openly and like openly is really often in hearings. And I think both of those things have value, right? So, so you wanna have the hearings where members can get things on the public record. Does, did everybody hear what that guy just said? Like, like, and it's common knowledge, not just to the people in the room, but to the people that care in interest group constituencies uh, in the Beltway and beyond. Um, so I think we need to have those open forums and then we need to have like spaces to make deals. Um, and so, so I think um, making deals is important. And I would say when I think about closed door negotiations, one thing I'd like to see more of in Congress is a lot more socializing, right? The softball games, the barbecues, the happy hours that, um, 
sometimes uh, I think are thought of as frivolous, but really are how members connect with how people connect with each other. And if we want members to be able to trust one another and make a deal, they need to know each other and they need to like each other. And, and these are likable people. Lots of people voted for them. Like it's not so hard to think that they would like each other if they just got enough time and in, in the same room. Well, it's interesting, you know, your perspective on the dialogue question, since you know, that's what's happening to these regulatory agencies to make a rule, right? Now they're not, they have a kind of hearing. Uh, it's not exactly the same, right? But they're negotiating behind closed doors among a group of experts about how to come down on a particular rule. Uh, and you seem to think that that's performing its function pretty well. Uh, and that's a lot of what seems to be lacking in the committee concept, right? Where they have these closed door sessions where they can do the same kind of discussion uh, in private uh, to come to a negotiated solution. Yeah, I would say there's an important distinction, which is in the executive branch, there's a ton of oversight to those closed that happens after those closed door meetings where we don't necessarily have that on the, the legislative side. Um, and so that's one distinction. And the other is, the other thing about these bureaucrats is they're spending their careers together, right? They're like, they have the same backgrounds when they work in the agency. They might both have the same type of degree or training and they um, have shared experiences, right? They're coworkers, which is not, I don't think how members of Congress view the chamber today. And so that's also another um, thing to keep in mind and this um, comparison. Yeah. All right, well, my next question is what fundamental institutional improvement should Congress make within 50 years? Okay. Well, um, I'm gonna come back to this idea of politics versus administration, right? Where there's a lot of criticism of the executive branch and the bureaucracy of making too many political calls. And so I'd like to see Congress making a lot more of those political calls. And I think that is hard and there's a million different things that could make that happen. I don't have the one sort of uh, panacea to fix them all. Um, if I could, with a wand, change one thing um, that uh, in, in sort of my little area, I think I would think about changing the Congressional Review Act. Um, it's really become, because it's only used at the beginning of a new administration with a new Congress of a different party, um, it's become this sort of adversarial tool and it really pushes agencies to make rules in the first three and a half years of an administration, which is not a great healthy uh, way to think about quality rulemaking and quality regulation. You want to do it when it's time, when it's done, not on some political, arbitrary political deadline. Um, and I think that uh, it's just... Um, made con made rulemaking seem even more partisan to Congress because we're undoing Trump's rules or undoing Obama's rules um, and and that I'd like to see a more thoughtful considerate considered way to oversee rulemaking because these are important policies and to have them um, sort of not systematically considered but ad hoc considered in an ad hoc way I think is is detrimental to the process. All right, well, the next question is, what book or article most shaped your thinking with respect to congressional reform? So I think um, this is not a book about congressional reform, but it's a book about how Congress operates today. And that's a, uh, Frances Lee's 2016 book, Insecure Majorities, where she really talks about 
like the spirit or zeitgeist of teamsmanship and what that manifests in Congress. Um, and so I think that was really, you know, we have, we talk about polarization a lot, but what does that mean today to a member? I think that book really helped me think about that. And she has this one figure in the book, which I think is wonderful. And it's counting the number of public relations staff in Congress over time. And just seeing that figure rise in both chambers, like really systematically over the last 20 or so years um, is eye-opening to think about how the functions and, and prioritized tasks in Congress have changed. So Congress is really focused on messaging and getting sort of sound bites out to the public. And that changes like what a deal means for different people. Um, and I, I just thought that was a really like smart, insightful way to think about what Congress is doing today. Do you think any of those kinds of polarization driven changes uh, will happen in the executive branch in these rulemaking agencies? You know, are they gonna start hiring PR staff and uh, are they gonna swing wildly from administration to administration? You know, um, I think that we ha haven't systematically looked at this. And I, I, I wonder on the one hand, if it's already occurred, right? This sort of parallel, we see a lot of parallels, like when one uh, part of the government does something that another part might pick it up. And I think that's an interesting research question for future work. All right, well, that is my last question actually, which is about your, your plan. Uh, what do you have coming in terms of your research, in terms of books? and uh, you know, the areas you want to focus on? Yeah, so I'm working on a book right now, um, looking at sort of the fact that we haven't had real bureaucratic growth since about 1960. So the size of the bureaucracy is pretty steady today. Um, and that's a really interesting puzzle because we do so much more, right? We didn't have net neutrality in, in 1960. So what does it mean um, to, how does the bureaucracy work? And the answer is really that contractors are stepping up um, and we have very little visibility to the, to sort of which contractors are doing what, for what agency, when, um, how do bureaucrats hold the inherently governmental line. So I'm really interested in thinking about the political trade-offs associated with this and how um, different choices made in Congress about appropriations and, uh, and in the presidency about sort of not wanting to look like you're growing big government have meant for the bureaucracy. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for your time, Professor Potter. It's been a pleasure and uh, best of luck with your new book. Thank you so much. <laughs>